I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Emily Holt is a veteran of Vogue, W, and Women's Wear Daily, who now owns Hero Shop in the Marin Country Mart. I loved her instinct to follow the fun when she left New York in 2016 to open her original store in San Francisco. Emily Holt is the third episode in our four-part retail miniseries. Emily Holt, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. You're very far away, but you sound nearby. I am so happy to be here. Yes, I am I, probably not fully 3,000, probably 2,000 miles away, looking actually at the beach as we speak. I'm at home. I'm really interested in your experience during this just because uh, because I because I care, uh, <laughs> but also because we have a store in California and it's been such a very different experience for our store in California than it has our store in North Carolina. So I can't wait to hear kind of all the things. And I don't know when we met, Emily, I feel like maybe I came to visit you at your office when you were at Vogue. Yes, I think so. And then we had dinner with Irene Newirth in Paris. Oh, yeah. oh right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. Very glamorous <laughs> meeting. <laughs> that is a very glamorous meeting. Not, haven't had many of those in the last year. <laughs> Will you tell the listeners where you're from? I am from Los Gatos, California, which is you know, sort of Silicon Valley. Grew up here and I went to UCLA, so lived in LA for about, took me five years to get through college. And, you know, lived in California, never entertained going to college outside of California because I thought the East Coast was cold and everybody was mean. I ended up then moving to the East Coast um, and going to journalism school at NYU. But I went to UCLA thinking I wanted to work in entertainment. I thought I wanted to work in Hollywood. I think I thought I wanted to be behind the scenes. You know, it was the 90s, the kind of hype of MTV and the real world and just <laughs> cool sort of cool jobs. And I was like, I want one of those. And then sort of realized slowly that entertainment wasn't for me and that I was interested in fashion. And actually I, I always like to, I'm not a big school person, but I really like to work. And so I had internships all through college uh-huh. and my senior year, I was looking for an internship and realized that my small studio apartment off the 405 was covered in magazines. And so I opened up W Magazine and called the number on the masthead for their LA office. <laughs> and it turned out to be across the street from my apartment. No way. And so I printed out my resume and ran it over there. And, you know, the minute that, you know, I got the internship and the minute I was there, I realized, oh, this is, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. It was a really clear moment for me that I'm so grateful for. And so what, what were you studying at UCLA? You weren't studying journalism. I was studying, no, I was studying communications, just kind of a catch-all. And, and growing up, had you been into fashion or? Calling it fashion would be a generous term. Um, I was into shopping. And, <laughs> you know, I, you, you know, if you looked at pictures of me from like my teeny, teenage years, you wouldn't, I don't know if you'd call it fashion per se, but I was, I loved to shop and I loved to participate in 
whatever trends were of the time or of the moment, you know, there are pictures of me from like eighth grade dances that it was sort of that time of like contempo casuals and button down shirts that were linen on the top and then chiffon on the bottom half with like hoop earring and a tiered chiffon skirt. So like, I wouldn't say it's fashion, but I was interested in participating. Los Gatos, is that how you pronounce it? Is it, it's a small town. So where, where did you shop there? there's like a main drag and there was a store called Chris Lowe's that I remember just because the name is embedded in my brain is the way things are when you're growing up. Um, I do remember I bought a blazer there once that was, so again, I was probably in junior high. It is probably the loudest, most outrageous piece of clothing I've ever bought. It was a blazer. It had shoulder pads. It, the lapels were black and white check and the like body of it was bright colored, almost like Memphis style. Like, Oh my God, that is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I bought that. And then we shopped at, you know, we shopped at the mall a lot. It was, we, our local mall was at the time Valley fair. Now it's Westfield. And it's like, now it's Westfield's like largest operating or largest highest volume location. And there's like a Balenciaga in there, but at the time it was Nordstrom's and Macy's. Yeah. And it sounds like your mom was maybe your first style icon. Tell me about her and what you remember her wearing. She was, I mean, we, that's how I learned how to shop. We shopped a lot. She liked to shop and I would go with her. My sister, I have a younger sister and we would go with her after school because she had to return something or get something. And my mom, we, again, like we just liked to shop. We're not, not in like a real housewives or bling empire way, but (laughs) We just like to shop. And my mom at the time, you know, it was again, like the height of Escada and all these embellished t-shirts and really bright things. And, you know, my mom, they would go to like school fundraisers or whatever fundraisers they would have. And my mom and dad would always get dressed up and we'd take a picture of them. And in, in spite of what I'm telling you about Escada, she has really good taste. Escada in its day was the bomb. I mean, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it's, she, she didn't grow up with it. She didn't grow up shopping or with fashion or with money, quite frankly, but she just had this innate sense of beauty and style and taste. And it's really special. So that's, you know, I would like to think that I inherited a little bit of that. And it sounds like you inherited another attribute from your, or as an attribute, another type of style, I guess, from your dad, which would be your work ethic. Yeah. My dad, and you know, again, like none of this was explicitly stated. It was more just modeling, but my dad is from the Midwest. He grew up in Michigan. He, I was very close to his parents, my grandparents, and, you know, they lived on a lake and my grandpa was a boat mechanic. And it's just very much that salt of the earth, work hard, head down, don't complain about it and just do it. Cause if you don't do it, it won't get done. And so, and, and it's kind of a double-edged sword, but I've definitely internalized that. And I know that he was really helpful in encouraging you to open your own business. Totally. My parents have always been encouraging with my education or with my jobs. They don't necessarily understand what any of it ever meant, but that didn't matter. They were just, you know, they were always encouraging. They, for instance, you know, I worked at W and Vogue for over a decade. They didn't really understand what that was, but they were just always encouraging. And you know, the same thing, I'm sure it was terrifying when I told them, Hey, I'm going to leave my job at Vogue in New York, come back to California, live with me for a while and start a business, you know, start a brick and mortar retail business in 20 
14 or whatever it was. And, you know, I'm sure they were like, oh, that's great. You know, um, but they never said so. And, you know, to their credit, just kind of blindly believed in me, um, which I think then allowed me to believe in myself as well. So yes, they've always been encouraging and, and also so supportive of the business itself. I mean, my dad is kind of our handyman and makes yeah. repairs in the stores and deliveries and puts up our Christmas tree every year. So, <laughs> well, talk to me a little bit about that journey from, from UCLA to New York and in the industry of magazines. My senior year at UCLA, I was interning at Women's Wear, like I said, and at the time Women's Wear and W were sister publications. And like I said, I just really fell in love with it. And, you know, to the point where Ed Nardoza, who was the editor at the time, was visiting the LA bureau and I set up an interview with him because I was like, I need to work for you. And the poor guy was like, why don't you just graduate first and like, take it easy. I did graduate and, you know, ended up moving back to San Francisco for about a year, trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I didn't, I knew I probably needed to be in New York, but it took me a while to get around to the idea of graduate school, just because I don't, I'm not a big school person to begin with, but realized that if I wanted to work in magazines, which I decided I did, I was going to have to live there. And I didn't know anybody in New York. I didn't have the guts to just move there and plop down in Times Square and say like, here I am, you know, journalism school would not only give me skills, but also, you know, it would buy me time. It would buy me a social community. And so I applied to NYU and Columbia and did not get anywhere near into Columbia. And actually got waitlisted at, at NYU because I had said on my application that I was interested in fashion journalism. And at the time, I remember having the conversation with the administrator who was kind of like, well, fashion journalism isn't really a thing. And so I had to defend myself and explain to her that I was interested, you know, fashion is an industry. It's a business and there's a way to cover it that is more serious than I think what they had in mind. Yeah. So I ended up going to NYU for journalism school and doing some internships while I was there. And then my last semester, I was an intern at Women's Wear and was thrilled. And as it turned out, when I graduated, there was an opening as junior accessories reporter. So what that meant was that I got to write about socks and, <laughs> and gloves and I couldn't have been happier. It was like, that's great. I would love to do that. Um, do that. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so that's what I did for about 18 months. I worked, you know, in the accessories department. And again, this was early 2000s. So it was the height of coach and handbags and like the Murakami effect. And so it was really exciting. And from there, I went on to the iDesk, which does all the social and cultural reporting. And you explain to the listeners what the iEditor is and does. It's kind of the celebrity society part of the paper. And it's, you know, Women's Wear is over a hundred years old and the I department has been a big part of that, you know, just as since the beginning, you know, we cover all the fashion parties. We covered red carpets at movie premieres. We covered, you know, society dinners, society fundraisers. Towards the end of my time there, I was going out four or five nights a week, all night with people who I was friendly with, but who certainly weren't my friends. And, you know, it was, it was great. It was incredibly glamorous and it was, access to a world that I would have otherwise had no access to. What was there, your most interesting takeaway from that time, a, a celebrity that you liked or was surprised by? The, you start, I've always really liked pop culture and really liked celebrities and have a funny sort of sixth sense for 
spotting people. So I met a lot of celebrities, which was incredible and, and super fun. You start to realize that, you know, I think in the beginning you have a fantasy that you're going to become best friends with all of them. And it's like, no, I had a three second conversation with Sophia Coppola. She's very kind, but she's not going to look at me and think, Emily, where have you been all my life? I've been looking for a best friend and I'm so glad I found you. Like it, she just doesn't care rightfully. So for the most part, I didn't get super, super starstruck except for Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger. Both of those guys made me weak in the knees. Like that was a good time. Yeah. So when you profiled them, you weren't talking about their clothes. You were talking about projects they had coming up. No, we did. I wasn't necessarily profiled. I met both of them separately, not together though. That would have been amazing. I was just, that's what I was thinking. I was yeah. like, that's a moment. No, no, no. Paul's daughter Stella's in fashion. So he would be at a lot of events that she was involved with. And so I would meet him at an event and get 30 seconds with him. And we did have to ask about, you know, I would ask about his impressions of his daughter's collections or, you know, Mick Jagger at the time was dating Lorenz Scott, who was a fashion designer. So he was at a lot of her events. And so you would ask them about their impressions of whatever collection they were celebrating at the time. But a lot of the men too, we had to talk about, you know, what they were, what they were wearing and what their own style was. And it's funny, I had this photo of myself interviewing Ted Danson and he is at, you know, probably like an environmental impact event. And he's, <laughs> looks like he's flashing me. Like he's about to sell me a bunch of counterfeit watches, but he was opening his jacket so that I could see the designer label of it because he didn't know who he was wearing, but I had to ask. Right. Um, so it's, it was always kind of a funny conversation. From that position, you also covered the Met Gala. Yes. And what yeah. was that like? That's just bananas. It's, <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. And it, it's such an interesting experience in that every single person in that room on that red carpet is famous and like uber famous. There is not one person who is not famous. And <laughs> so to be in that same room is, you, you feel very small, but you also sort of then get to watch. I, I really liked, and I'm sure you're kind of the same way as you like people, which is why you do what you do. So I like to watch people and you sort of start to see that other celebrities are intimidated by different celebrities right. and like <laughs> the whole sort of pecking order and the sociology and psychology of that. So, you know, it was and incredible. When you cover that, do you also have to dress? I mean, do yes. you look down? And yeah. And you do, yeah. Um, and, you know, so covering basically means standing along the red carpet and asking celebrities questions as, you know, we now see people do in reality shows all the time. And so you have to sort of know who's going, be up to date on who's doing what and come up with a question that either entertains them or elicits some sort of interesting information. I do remember my 30th birthday fell on the night of the Met Gala, 2008. The theme was superheroes. It was superheroes. And Julia Roberts and George Clooney were the co-hosts. Oh my God. And for me, it was like, there was no better 30th birthday gift. I got to cover the red carpet that night. I got to borrow a gown from Chanel, which, you know, again, you just sort of feel like, is this my life? This is insane. <laughs> so I did the red carpet at the Met Gala. And then, you know, you don't get to actually attend the Met Gala. You're still just the help. So you go somewhere near the museum and have dinner with your colleagues. And then I covered the, the after party last night that was hosted by Armani. And it was for George Clooney's birthday because I think his birthday is maybe May 6th and this was May 5th. Okay. So Armani threw a big birthday party for George Clooney and 
it was at bungalow eight. And you just, again, look around. It's like every single person in here is famous. This is <laughs> insane. And you just, again, feel really, really small, but it's like at least I have the Chanel dress on. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you also find out really quickly that nobody cares about you. So it was actually in a good, like, it's, and it's a lesson that I've kind of carried with me through stuff. Like I don't get nervous about, I don't get very nervous about what I'm going to wear to a fundraiser or a gala or somewhere social because nobody's looking at me. Like they're looking at all the, they're looking at everybody looking at them, they're looking at everybody looking at them and they're looking at all the like bold face names. Like nobody's looking at me, nobody cares. And so it's kind of been a funny lesson to learn. That's actually been applicable for the last, you know, 15 <laughs> years. So then from there you went to W and then after that Vogue. Yeah. So W and women's were sister publications at the time. So I worked for both simultaneously. And then after that, yes, I went to Vogue and was, uh, I was fashion news editor there. And so I got to write about designers, trends. I got to interview, you know, fashionable women about the way that they dress, the way that they live their lives in a stylish way. I got to cover the runway shows in New York and London and Milan and Paris and it again was just a dream come true. And you're just wondering how is this the, my life? How is this the same girl that was buying that ridiculously loud, hideous blazer at Chris Lowe's? At Chris Lowe's. <laughs> Any favorite stories that you worked on while you were at Vogue? The ones that I really liked were the ones where I got to talk to women about, again, like their homes and their lifestyle. And again, and I know this is something that you focus on in your work, but also in your podcast that you talk about how this is about people. It's not really about fashion. And that's always been my interest too. So I loved to interview, you know, I did, I interviewed the actress Lily Sobieski once I interviewed Carolyn Murphy and Amber Valletta, just about like how they lived, how they, how they put their home together, how they put their life together, how they spent their time. And that's as interesting to me as, as what they wear. We always say also that Vogue is sort of like graduate school for fashion. Is there anything specific that you learned that you've carried with you that you think about a lot? Something that I learned at Vogue comes up easily every day. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's about supporting and celebrating American designers, whether it's about, you know, supporting causes or, or certain charities that I think could use some support or about, you know, celebrating and promoting a happy kind of fashion, you know, and again, I think this is something you do obviously incredibly well too, is, is celebrating colorful, happy clothes. Yeah. You know, it's fashion. It's meant to be upbeat. You know, there's no need necessarily to sit around and be moody about it. It must've been a hard thing for you to decide to leave and pursue your dream of opening your own store. For sure. And I, you know, I have to be clear. I, the dream actually was to work in magazines in New York. So what was the impetus? Like, how did you do it? The impetus was I'd been living in New York for 12 years. I, worked in Times Square. I lived in Union Square. So I was just surrounded by people all the time, everywhere. <laughs> For a while, I thought, well, maybe I should just move to Brooklyn or, you know, up to Hudson. But then that didn't really pan out. And I reached a point where I realized I was really, really satisfied with what I had accomplished. And I was in a position where, you know, I rented my apartment. I wasn't married. I didn't have any family holding me to New York and I could make a change if I wanted to. And again, I really liked shopping. So to, I would walk home from work and pass, you know, all kinds of stores along Broadway 
Mm-hmm. And fantasize about, oh, if I had a shop, this is what I would have in it. This is how I would display it. And it just seemed really fun. Yeah. And again, I was at a point where I could, I was satisfied with my career. I was in a position where I could make a change with my life. And I thought, you know, it sounds fun. So let's follow the fun. If it leads me to, you know, join a soccer team, then that's what I'll do. But like, I'm just going to follow the fun and see where it leads. And, you know, a shop sounds fun. So I'm going to keep thinking about that. And it was terrifying, but what made it slightly less so is that whenever I told my friends my idea, they all unequivocally were like, yes, you should do this. Yeah. And that was really, really helpful. I think also it would be helpful to a lot of the people listening to the podcast for, to hear sort of how you left your job and, and maybe the right way to leave a job. It's hard to explain how to do it properly because doing it any other way seems insane to me. But, but now you and you're in business and I'm sure you do. You yeah. Have some of that. Yes. And you're just like, I don't understand what's not, <laughs> what's not clear about this. I, it was a really tough decision and I communicated that and I was doing it because I wanted to try something different. And it had, you know, it, it wasn't because I was unhappy. It was because I wanted to try something new. And I think that, you know, most reasonable people and most bosses will support you in that way. And I tried to, you know, my whole career, I'm, you know, again, I think you can maybe relate, like I'm very obedient. I'm very, like, I turn things in on time. I'm very polite. I try to be very professional. So, you know, I had built up, I would hope a reputation for being professional. And, you know, so I communicated, it was a really tough decision and I was just going to sort of take this risk. And I'm, eternally grateful that they were really supportive of that. And, yeah. you know, but quitting was terrifying and to, you know, be asked to walk into Anna Wintour's office and quit is terrifying. <laughs> but For what you were wearing? <laughs> I don't remember what I was wearing oddly, though. That's an interesting point. I was really nervous, rightfully so. And was, you know, so kind of tried to figure out exactly what I was going to say. You know, I had had a bit of interaction with Anna, but not very much. And again, this was a very emotionally heightened experience. And so what I did was before I went in there, I Google image searched Anna wearing sunglasses and (laughs) pretended to quit to the computer screen. You did not. I love that so much. Yeah. Because I thought if I didn't, I was certainly going to mess it up. Certainly not going to be able to say what I wanted to say and be a total mess. And of all times, I did not want to be a mess. I wanted her to support me and to understand, you know, exactly where I was coming from with this. So yeah, no, I fully practiced to my computer screen. That is awesome. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Um, And again, and (laughs) it's ridiculous, but thank God I did because I was able then to have like a proper conversation as opposed to being a total mess. (laughs) And she was really supportive. That's great. Yeah. So I hear entrepreneurs say over and over, the hardest part is to start. So how, how did you actually just start? It is. It's just that thing of like, you just take one step and one foot in front of the other. But, you know, I didn't know anything. I've never started a business before. I didn't know what a PL was. I'd never written a business plan. One of my friends at Vogue as a going away gift gave me the book Retail for Dummies, which I opened and read. And you just, you just kind of start. And it took a long time. It took, of course, 
I moved back to California in June. Of course, I thought by that September, I would open a store. And it was like, okay, no, not at all. It always takes longer than you want anything to take. But I had so much to learn that it rightfully took that long. Um, I took classes on how to write a business plan. I met with everybody I could meet, whether it was to talk about whether they worked in the fashion industry and it was to talk about business or whether they were a shopper. I wanted to know what kinds of things they liked to buy, whether it was somebody who could help me raise some money. So it was just a lot of my own sort of education and research. And you just kind of get, you get started and you just have to have a lot of patience. And it's really, it's really hard to do. And there are a lot of days that you wake up and think, I can't have another conversation about how I'm crazy to open a store. I can't, you know, look at one more thing that explains to me what PLs and all this finance stuff is. And then you think, fine, don't do it. You don't have to do it. Yeah. The alternative is X, Y, or Z. And it's like, oh yeah, no, okay. I'll keep going. That's an interesting thing that you said, because I, I, I do always tell people like, if you're waiting for the crowd, you know, to all support you, the community to all say, yes, this is an amazing idea to take a huge risk. <laughs> You're just never, ever going to get that. I never got that. And so yeah. I, 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 early on, I, I, I needed my husband's support and I guess that was about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, that is kind of it. And it, you, it, for better or worse, it's just you on the path. Was it always San Francisco? It was because Part of the impetus for opening the store and opening the store here was we would meet with designers at the Vogue offices all the time. And again, Silicon Valley was there. It is obviously still, but at the time, like very big, very buzzy. And all these designers and brands wanted to know how to access that market. And and we didn't really have answers for them. Right. I thought, well, I'm from there. and, And, you know, at the same time, San Francisco was getting a pretty bad reputation for not having any style whatsoever. And so I got a little bit of a mama bear thing where it's like, no, there is style there. And a little bit of like, well, why can't these designers access this market? What's, what's the gap here? How can I bridge the gap between these designers I'm writing about and what people are actually shopping for and buying in the Bay area? Emily, how did you choose the name hero shop? I chose the name Hero Shop because it was sort of that time when I was trying to figure out if I was just going to move somewhere where I had a little bit more space and stay in New York, or I was also fantasizing about the store. And so I was walking around Brooklyn looking for apartments and passed a bodega on the corner that was called Hero Shop. And (laughs) something about it just kind of clicked. And I'd been, again, fantasizing about owning a store for a long time, but I didn't want it to be my name. I didn't want it to be something super femme. And it just kind of clicked and it was a symmetrical name. It's two words, four letters each. I kind of had a vision of picturing it in the windows as it ended up being in our windows on Post Street and deciding that that was it allowed me to move forward with the rest of the planning. So whether it was the perfect name or not, it allowed me to take the next step and keep planning. And that was what was important. I mean, if I did it again, I don't know that I'd use the same name, but you can also spin it a thousand ways. You can talk about you know, a hero piece of clothing. You can talk about heroic efforts. You can talk about the fact that a corner bodega is a very egalitarian democratizing place. And I want this fashion to be accessible to a lot of people. So a lot of ways to spin it. And so what were the first few years of hero shop like in San Francisco downtown? I mean, downtown in a neighborhood called the Tenderloin, which is (laughs) nicest way to put it is that it's up and coming. (laughs) Um, it's, it's a little rough. <laughs> it's a little rough. It's one of the, 
but you know, it's history there is so enmeshed with music and jazz culture and LGBTQ rights. And so it's a really dynamic neighborhood. It's, you know, since gone into disrepair, but I believed in it. And it was important to me that the store was located in an area that where it could be part of a community. You know, it didn't, I didn't think it was very interesting to open a store on a street with a bunch of other stores because that's not a story. But right. if you hear the stores opening in an unexpected place, that's more interesting. And, you know, I knew because of my connection to the press that we could get a little bit of attention. And so people would know where to find us. The beginning, you know, our selection was really dictated mostly by my connections at Vogue, because again, who would sell to somebody who'd never owned a business before? So I really <laughs> had to rely on the people that I knew and the reputation that I had built yeah. to be trustworthy and, and pay bills. And was it successful right away? No, no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, I mean, let's be honest, I'm not sure, especially now, but even before the pandemic, like, what, it's, what does that even mean? <laughs> exactly. It's tough. And, you know, it's still brick and mortar retail, which everybody tells you. And, you know, you especially were so incredibly kind and generous to share what you knew and what you had learned with me. But everybody tells you it takes at least three to five years to break even. And listen, yeah. we've only been open about six. One of them was a pandemic. So <laughs> no, it, was, it wasn't successful financially right away. And, but we did sort of hit the hit other milestones you know we did build a nice community we did have really fun cool events we did sell things that you couldn't find elsewhere in the bay area so we ticked other boxes but no it wasn't a success right away what did you love about it that surprised you hmm it's a good question <laughs> i knew that i would like it because again i knew that if i had free time i would want to spend it in a shop yeah so i knew i would kind of like it in that sense, I would say that there were probably more things I experienced or encountered that I didn't care for, <laughs> that I didn't consider. You know, I didn't consider that I'd basically given myself the job of an accountant. You know, I right. spent most of my days answering emails and paying bills. That's yeah. not the most glamorous thing. And that's not what you have in mind when you think I'm gonna open a store. Right. <laughs> So that was more surprising than, you know, I, I knew that I would like it and, and I did. How far into it did you open your second location at the Marin Country Mart? We, oh, so we opened in the Tenderloin in 2016. And then in 2019, we did a pop-up actually at the Marin Country Mart. It was a location. It's about 20 minutes north of the city. It's across the Golden Gate Bridge. It's an area much like Brentwood where your uh, store is and it's really sunny there's lots of parking it's a very nice it's magical I think it's magical it's magical we did and so I'd always been interested in it but just didn't have the bandwidth or the people to work it I mean that's the thing that you also I think don't think about if you're considering opening a physical space is if you're not there 24 7 you're gonna have to find somebody who is yeah. and it's hard to find people so I just couldn't split myself into two until 2019 and we did a pop-up there which went really well and so we decided to stay permanently and we opened there permanently in August of 2019. And I think I don't know much about the I don't know socialization I guess of San Francisco but I, I would think that probably you don't have a lot of cross traffic like people that are in the city stay there people that are in Marin stay there. Not necessarily I mean the well the biggest difference since the pandemic the Tenderloin store closed so that store is no longer but prior to the pandemic 
our foot traffic at that store was 90% tourists. Wow. Every time somebody came in, we would say, oh, where are you? You know, is this your first time in the store? And it's, yes, I'm visiting from DC, <laughs> from LA, from New York, from Spain, from wherever. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it was and that, really- And that's a different business, by the way, right? That's a totally different business. It's much harder because you can't anticipate <laughs> who your customer is at all. Yeah. And so that, so 90% of our foot traffic at the Tenderloin store were tourists. And then we were servicing our San Francisco clients, you know, uh, more with like appointment shopping or personal shopping. I would deliver things to them. Mm-hmm. And when I opened the Marin location, I actually saw more of our San Francisco clients there because again, a lot, it's a more pleasurable experience than going into a gritty, tough neighborhood. You know, as much as I really wanted that Tenderloin location to work for a lot of reasons, the reality of it was that it was tough to get people there. Right. And San Francisco's not New York and that people aren't willing to make a trek to an right. unknown neighborhood to shop. So when I opened the Marin location, I actually saw more of my San Francisco clients there That's than amazing. I ever did on Post Street. And it's because it's, it's magical, sunny, parking. It's just delightful. Even now that Post Street is closed, I mean, that has also maintained, I still continue to see more of our San Francisco clients there. And, you know, I was also just thinking about it. The fact of the matter is because of how everything is now, like so many other places, our suburbs here in the Bay Area are thriving and the city is suffering. So the pandemic started five years into your business. Tell me about how it's going and what are the silver linings of the pandemic for your business? In a funny way, it's helpful. It's helpful that we were so young and still struggling for lack of a better term, because it's not as if everything was going swimmingly and we were just sitting back and relaxing and then had to pivot into, oh yeah. shit mode. We were in oh shit mode for a while. So it just became different. You know, like I said, we closed our San Francisco store, which was really bittersweet and emotional. We ended up expanding the store at the Marin Country Mart and focusing there. And there have been some silver linings and it's a tough thing to feel. And I don't know if you feel this way too, but it's given everything that's been going on, it's hard to celebrate at the same time, the good things that we have been able to accomplish. You know, we actually had a great year last year. Yeah. Uh, Our clients were really supportive. We worked really hard. We pivoted in a thousand different ways to service them mm-hmm. and we came out okay. And, and we were able to get out of our lease in San Francisco much more easily because of the pandemic. I mean, I had six more years on that lease. I really, wow. when I signed up to be there, I really dug in. Yeah. So we were able to get out much more easily and able to, you know, do things kind of more seamlessly. We were able to pick up brands that we couldn't otherwise pick up because they were sold at other stores that have now since closed. Right. My daughter is um, 16 and she was in an econ kind of marketing class and she was asking, she was doing a case study on, on capital. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, but I I was talking to her about it today and I said, you know, that it's so interesting how helpful 2008 for me was because I had gone along and sort of not known why I was successful until I wasn't successful. And then it really made me put words around and define, you know, what, what was it that was working? What do we do that's different from anybody else? What do we do that's better than everybody else? I mean, all the things, and I never would have taken the time or interest in doing that, you know? Completely. How did you get through that, by the way? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I, mean, I definitely didn't sleep for several years, and I mean, I definitely. I mean, it it was really, it was really crazy. I think the main thing was just knowing that, I mean, realizing that I am a warrior and I really want to do this, you know? And I think that, that, that was the other thing that, you know, it it wasn't until that moment where I really knew that I was a fighter and that I was, this was something I wanted to fight for. Resilience is such a crucial quality. Yeah. It's a, it's a brutal business. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure acting and celebrities are more brutal business, but this one's pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on all sides of it, I'm sure. And I'm sure in the um, publishing part of it and editorial and all that. Yeah, I mean, all these industries that we love are all undergoing such sea changes. Right. So you're part of a, a special retail mini series that we're doing that includes my friend, Jeffrey Kalinsky, Sherry McMullen and Beth Buccini. I'm so um, excited. I was listening to Jeffrey this morning. Oh, <laughs> so I want to hear a little bit about what you think the future of retail looks like. I can only speak to what it looks like for me. Thinking about what it looks like on any larger scale is overwhelming and <laughs> for me, at least, you know, impossible. But for us, again, a little bit like what you said, it's focusing on what we do well that sets us apart, that makes us happy too. Because again, I think the last year has encouraged us all to focus on things that we enjoy doing and maybe let some of the other rat race stuff slough off. So what is, what is it that we enjoy doing that we do well? And for us, it's really relationships and it's working with clients that trust us, that we enjoy and servicing them in every way that we know how, whether it's asking them to come shop with us in store, whether it's putting together a selection for them to try on at their house, whether it's just checking in and saying hello. And so that's sort of one part of the business. And we do a lot of, you know, I should say also, I think personal customer service is a strength of ours as well as it is at a lot of boutiques. But what we do, I kind of joke that we're like the fashion version of DoorDash. So we do (laughs) same day delivery for any online purchases or any approval boxes. So, I mean, I spend sometimes two hours every night, just driving stuff around to clients' homes. <laughs> yeah, we do not too. Great. Yeah, it's not great for my own personal life, but if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Well, I hope you have an electric car. Do you I have a Prius? That's, I do not, but that is actually an excellent point. <laughs> I have to say, I, I want to tell you also, one of the conversations I had with my buying team yesterday, yeah. we were talking about how difficult a particular designer was being. And yeah. And I was, and I said, you know, it's funny you say that because 2008 was a really, there was a really clear line that we, we said, you know, I'm just, we're just not going to do business with you anymore. These ones that were just a pain and difficult. And, you know, it's like, life is too short. It is, it's just not worth doing business with people that stink. (laughs) Completely, completely. I, I think that, I think that more often than I'd like to, but yes, I completely agree. And, and it's never been clearer than now. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's funny because that, that you're right. Like it, it's so, so clear when, you know, the team was talking about this designer and sort of the demands they had. And I was like, are you really saying this? Well, <laughs> and especially, 2021? Like what? <laughs> exactly. And especially now too, when there's so much out there. Yes. You know, it's like, I'm sure this designer is lovely and has great talent, but there's a lot of talent out there. So, you know, there's other collections. Yeah. So any hopes for the future of the industry? Any great hopes? 
Totally. And, and I think, you know, you, you are a great example and you'd probably agree. I think in-store shopping will remain. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I think personal customer service will be even more important than ever. And working with people to make their lives easier will be more important than ever. And, you know, the digital part is a reality. Our prior to the pandemic, you know, online was such a second thought for us at best. And now it's our first thought. And so growing that business and growing our e-commerce and what you know, a, you've done a beautiful job at it. I mean, I think your, your e-com is so, so well done. Well, thank you. I mean, we were very, it was very serendipitous that we redesigned our website a year before the pandemic hit. And so we were able to, because up until that point, we weren't able to really do anything with it. So that yeah. was very serendipitous. And again, I understand, especially being in the Bay area, people are just more prone to online shopping and it makes their lives easier. And so we really focused on that. And, you know, we send out newsletters now more often. I'm less shy, you know, I'm not, I'm an introvert and I'm not a natural salesperson. So I've always been a little bit uncomfortable selling, mm -hmm. but the pandemic makes you just very less shy. You know, your backups back is up against the wall. And so it's like, if I don't sell this, I'm in real trouble. And so I've just become less shy about promoting what really pretty things we have and suggesting that people might like them too. For me too. I've, I've I had such a nice time with a client yesterday and I, I just thought, you know, it's so nice to spend time with people like human beings totally. <laughs> that you like. Yeah. And I tell them that all the time. It's especially also because as I'm sure you do, you sometimes end up with clients that you don't <laughs> care for. And so the ones that you like, you're just so grateful and think, thank you so much for coming in and making my day. Yeah. And what could be more fun than, you know, looking at beautiful art pieces of art that people have made to put on your body. I mean, it's just delightful. Exactly. Exactly. What did you wear to the prom and was it from Chris Lowe's? <laughs> you know, it was not from Chris Lowe's. Okay. <laughs> I think by, the, by then maybe Chris Lowe's might have closed or I might have graduated out of it, but we had a couple different proms, you know, we would have, and, and I went to a couple different prom. So the one I remember, there are two I remember. One, I did shop a lot at Nordstrom's and there was a dress at the Brass Plum that was like baby blue satin with a lot of embellishments. It was like a column with spaghetti straps. And I just thought it was gorgeous, but it was too expensive. So my mom wouldn't buy it. And somehow we got the idea that we would have a local tailor in town make my dress. Oh, yeah. So she made a baby blue satin like column dress. Then I decided to wear white gloves with it. <laughs> again, I'm not like, again, this just reiterates the point that saying I've always been into fashion is a very generous term. Um, and were, they, were they high? I mean, yes, they were high. And then I put my hair up and I ended up looking like Cinderella, quite honestly. I love that. Ish, maybe. That I mean, very beautiful. Yeah, I was an awkward like 16 year old. So I don't, I don't know that I was the picture of elegance. But then the next year I really course corrected and ended <laughs> up wearing a black Mini dress in Bebe. It was a, like had a deep V was a little like short fit and flare dress. I had borrowed it from my best friend and went very like simple, minimal, still had the front, like fake nails with the French manicure, but was otherwise like very streamlined. That is awesome. Yeah. I love that. Those are good. Those are two back-to-backs too. Those are, they're good ones. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I liked to experiment. I experiment much less now. Now I've kind of, kind of honed in on what my style is, but those first 18 years were 
interesting. Thank you, Emily, so much for spending this time with me. I really oh, appreciate thank you. it. And I look so forward to having supper in Paris together again. <laughs> exactly, me too. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.